to get rid of the Old Testament. He said, that's stupid. It's worthless. We don't need that at all. It's just old, old school information that's irrelevant. Not true. It's relevant to us. And the church fought to keep it in, and so did Paul, okay, just so that you know. So first of all, we'd love, love to build a little bit of intrigue that you'd go and do a little more research. Go read, find out more about the background. Second goal was this. Uh, these are divine and human masterpieces. The Bible is a fascinating construct. It is, as a book. God inspired the information to be written down, and yet these stories are astoundingly human. They're amazingly human. And the human writers write with different uh, reference points. They've got different styles. They've got different formats that they use. They're all over the place. Different languages show up in the Old Testament. God constructed, however, the greatest masterpiece in the ancient Near East. There's not any literature like it. And any scholars who have studied from all around the globe, around that, that area, there is nothing like in the content, in the structures, in the everything else. It's an amazing book, the Old Testament. And that's the third thing that we're hoping you could pick up. There's some mechanisms, there's some pieces of the way this is put together that it was not just to be written down. You know, they didn't have iPads. They didn't have that to pass it around. They also, most of them didn't have books. The vast majority, for centuries, these stories were passed on verbally. So they're built with all kinds of little mechanisms and hooks within them to make them very memorable and memorizable. Now, I don't know if that's a word, probably not, but, but so that people could pass them along verbally as well as in written form, which makes them very interesting. And the fourth thing is this. This is by far the most important thing. In every one of these stories, plus dozens and dozens that we never even touched, this is the theme. Faith in God and great courage through difficult and suffering times. Not because God was making sure that the sky was blue and the birds were singing and there were rainbows and unicorns. It's not like that. This book is not said in a thing like this. Look at this. This is craziness up here, right? That's all fantasy. This book is set in the reality of people who had really tough stories. Often, nothing to do with their own fault. Perfect timing, God. Thanks. Appreciate that. Often, nothing to do with that. But often, almost always, through and in the midst of, people came to the conclusion, faith in God and courage is still worth it. It matters. And those are the heroes that God writes their stories. And this is the seventh one that we're going to pick up today. Hosea. If you don't, as we mentioned, there's no Bibles in the chairs today, but hopefully you have one maybe electronically, or if somebody brought one in paper, God bless you. We almost never see a Bible that's a paper Bible anymore. But you're welcome to bring them, by the way. You'll have to bring one out to the amphitheater because we won't have Bibles out there for sure in the pews, and uh, there's no pews, and it, hopefully it doesn't do this next week. That's what we're hoping. Get this out of the system and get, get that over and done with. But Hosea is in the, the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Let me give you just a little bit of a, of a context here for our, uh, Hosea. Because you wonder maybe, hey, are these guys all like the same time frame? How does this work, right? What's going on? Well, let me give you this. First of all, Isaiah, big book, right in there, about 700 years before Jesus, B.C., in that rough time frame. And 
uh, it's written to Judah, which is the southern tribes. This book that we're going to study today, Hosea, is written to the northern tribes. So it's different, even the context that they're written to. 700 before. Then Jeremiah is the next book. It's about 625 years before, also written to Judah's southern kingdom. Ezekiel and Daniel were pretty much contemporaries with Jeremiah as well, around 600. Daniel, you remember the story where he's carried off to Babylon into captivity and things go on. Then this book shows up next. You'd think, well, maybe this is written in 550 B.C. or something. No, all the way back to 750 B.C. This is before the northern tribes even start to be carried off into Assyria. It gives you a context of what God is trying to illustrate here. He's trying to say to you, hey, Israel, hello, northern tribes, Ephraim, all of the different stories or the phrases that he used, hello, you still have a chance, but you're on the trail to destruction right now. You're worshiping Baals, you're worshiping the other gods around you, you're not worshiping me, you have forgotten me, and we'll pick that up in this, we'll hear it in this story. So that's the context. Now, a couple of questions to be thinking about. First of all, how much can we know about Hosea? What do we know about this guy? Uh, as we look in here, you'll find out, fascinating, the answer to that question. Hosea. Second of all, there's a metaphor in here that is the relationship between Hosea and his wife, Gomer, an unfortunate name, Gomer. For those of you, how many remember? Gomer Pyle. Yeah, okay. Um, that's an, it's, well, it was kind of pulled out of the Bible and unfortunately applied to a crazy guy that Jim Neighbors played in, uh, back in the day for us old people who remember that TV show. But anyways, Gomer is his wife, Hosea's wife, Gomer. And there's a metaphor there. This story is about them, but it's about somebody else. There's also a metaphor in here where you ask yourself this question. Of all these stories, these are written about the nation of Israel. Is there any application to us today? What difference does that make? I'm not Jewish. I'm not from the tribes that wandered around in the land of Canaan. What difference does it matter to me? We're going to ask that question a little bit about what does this metaphor matter to us? As we move along. So turn to, Hose, or to Hosea. That's exactly right. If you have it there. Otherwise I'm going to read some things to you. From this story. Chapter 1. Right out of the book. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea son of Beri. They did this often to say. This is a real live person. They'll also do this with Gomer. List the father. The name of the family. To say this is a real person. This is not you know goofy dopey doc. Grumpy. These are real people with a real story. And in the reigns of, and they would often list these kings to say, here's the time frame that this happened. So you all remember this guy. The reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah in Judah. That's a long period of time. A lot of time in the southern tribes. And the reign of Jeroboam in the north, in the king of Israel. So they give a context here. These are real things that happened. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, so here's the first thing that comes out. The very first sentence that God gives. We don't know if it was the first interaction Hosea had with God. We don't know that. It doesn't say it. But this is the first thing that starts to come across to him as prophecy from God. Listen to this. The Lord said to him, go, take yourself an adulterous wife and have children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery. Does that bother anybody else but me? 
Did God just tell him, first sentence out of the mouth for the prophecy, here, I want you to go marry a woman that's going to be unfaithful to you. Oh, and by the way, I want you to have children by her, and they're not going to be your kids. What is God thinking here? What is God doing? You, you have to ask yourself, wait a second. Is this setting precedent? Is this what we're all supposed to do now? Is this it? I, I doubt that. Let's keep going. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Mentions he is the father of this child. And the Lord said, call him Jezreel, which actually means God plants. That's what it means. And it refers to an area in Israel. Here's what it says. Because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And in that day, I'll break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. This is actually a, a punishment as a result of persecution against those who are wanting to follow God, and they were killed as a result of that. Okay, that's kid number one, who is a child of Gomer and Hosea. Then, Gomer conceived again, verse 6, and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, did you hear a hymn in there? Did you hear a father in there? No. Gomer conceived, almost as if this happened, well, almost miraculously. It isn't a miraculous conception. But apparently Hosea was nowhere around when this happened. Call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel. Here is the word, what this means. It means, you are not loved by me. How many of you would want to name your second child, you're not loved by me? What is God doing here? He's literally saying, I want you to name this child. Every time you call this child in for dinner, you're going to say, you're not loved by me. Come on in for dinner. That's how this is set up. Because I will no longer show love to the house of Israel and I, that I should forgive them, but I will show love to the house of Judah. This is this differentiation now between the north and the south. You start to pick up here a contrast that goes all the way through this letter, which is the bad news is you want, your wife is having a child, the child is not yours, and I want you to name the child, you're not loved by me. The good news is, I haven't forgotten about you. Please keep hearing that all the way through this contrast as it goes on. I will show love to the house of Judah. I will save them, not by the bow or sword or battle or horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. I will take care of them. That played out in history, by the way. Verse 8, after she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, which sounds like this is a very short period of time, she had another son. Gomer had another son. Again, no man mentioned. Highly unlikely that this is Hosea's son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. So the second child, the daughter, is named, you're not loved by me. The third son, the third child, son, is named, you're not my kid. You're not my family. You're not my people. Once again, what in the world is God doing here? Obviously, obviously illustrating something. This is God commanding him to do this. He's not just reacting to the circumstance. But he says, God says, you are not my people, I am not your God. Yet, 
verse 10, the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore. What does that remind you of, the sand on the seashore? You remember back when God was talking to Abraham? And he said, go outside, look at the stars. Consider all the sand on the, that's how many people, you will be so prosperous, you will grow. You, my people, will be amazing on this planet. God says, name this child, you're not my people. And then he says, oh, by the way, but I will not rescind this idea. You will still be like the sand on the seashore. Can't be measured or counted. And then it says, where you were said before, you're not my people. You'll be called the sons of the living God. The people of Judah, the people of Israel will be reunited. They've been at each other's throats for at least 100 years, probably closer to 150 by this time, that they had been separated from each other. And God says, I'm going to reunite you back together. There will be one leader that will come up out of the land. Who would that one leader be? That would be the Messiah who will literally lead the nation. Save your brothers, my people of your sisters, my loved one. He flips, God flips it over and says, you are loved and you're my people now. Now, he heads into something. That is, by the way, about, uh, let's see, 12 verses of prose, of, of description of what happens. In those 12 verses, God says, go marry a woman, she'll be unfaithful to you. We hear about three different children mentioned, tells the names and everything that's going on, and that's it. Would you ask the question, God, would you give us a little more detail? Like, what's happening here? How did Hosea feel about this? What in the world gone, went on in the interactions between them? Why did he keep Gomer around in the first place? All of that goes unsaid. And then we go to poetry. The vast majority of this book, only 5% of this book is written in this type of phrase, in the prose. All the rest of it is poetry because God is saying, I'm trying to use imagery. I'm trying to use allegory. I'm trying to use picture. I'm trying to use metaphor to tell you what is going on here and do it with force. And God starts in. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her for she's not my wife. I'm not her husband. Is that just about a Gomer and Hosea? Hmm. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face. Otherwise, verse 3, I'll strip her naked and, and basically just shame her. I'll make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land. I'll not show my love to her children because they're children of adultery. The mother has been unfaithful. She said, I'm going to go after my lovers and the stuff that they have to offer instead of after God. Wait, is that what it's saying? Yes, right? This is not just about Gomer and Hosea. I will wall her in, verse 6, so that she can't find her way. But then, verse 7, she will say, I will go back to my husband. Huh, as at first. From now till then, she has not acknowledged that I was the one that gave her these things. Verse 9, I will take away my grain and my wine from her. I'll take back the wool that I gave to her and the linen. Verse 10, I'll expose her lewdness. Verse 11, I'll stop all the celebrations. Verse 12, I'll ruin the vines and the fig trees. Verse 13, I'll punish her for all the days that she sacrificed to the bales because she forgot me. And thankfully... It flips again, verse 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her 
and speak tenderly to her. Verse 15, I'll give her back the vineyards and the things. Verse, at the end of 15, she'll sing as in the days of her youth. 16, you'll call me my husband, declares the Lord. I'll remove the names of the veils from her lips. Verse 17, verse 18, the bow and the sword and the battle I'll abolish from the land so that you'll have safety. Verse 19, I'll betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you in righteousness, justice, love, compassion, faithfulness. Unbelievable. God flips this whole, after all of those, I'm taking it aways, he flips it over and offers hope. Listen to verse 20, these, how it starts in 21 with these responds. In that day, I will respond, says the Lord. I'll respond to the skies. They'll respond to the earth. The earth will respond to the grain, and they will respond to Jezreel. It's an unbelievable sense of we'll be back in coordination with one another. We will respond to one another, which is how a relationship is designed to work, right? Not a one-way street. It's two people responding to each other. Listen to 23. I'll plant her for myself in the land. I'll show my love to the one that I called, not my loved one. I'll say to those who are called, not my people, you are indeed my people. And they will say, you are my God. Do you hear the hope how God flips this over? Do you hear how that works? It's an amazing thing. Now it goes on here. So we hear all this prose. These children have been born. There's no mention of anything in the way that, that has happened in the, the relationship between Hosea and Gomer. And it goes back to prose here in chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Hosea, go find her, show love to your wife once again, though she is loved by another. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Ooh, we're on to something there. Though they turned away from me. So it says, verse 2, I went and I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethak of barley, which is not that much. It's a pretty low price. He buys her back. And I told her, you're to live with me many days. Not, don't be a prostitute or intimate with any man anymore. For the Israelites, wait, how do, where are we going here? See how this thing is back and forth between the metaphor works back and forth between the people, Hosea and Gomer, and God and Israel. For the Israelites will live many days. They won't have a king or a prince. They won't have sacrifice or sacred stones. They won't have their ephod or idol. They will return and seek the Lord their God and David as their king. They'll come trembling to the Lord, to his blessings in the last days. And that is the last we get of any of the details of this story between these two people. And the rest of the book is poetry as God uses the forceful images. He uses 35 different metaphors referring to Israel to say they're just like, or similes, they're just like this, and that's just like a, a stubborn ox or different things that he uses. A couple of points of intrigue I want you to get out of here. Wendy, if we could put that. So first of all, why would there be so little narrative in here? Narrative being the telling of the story. Why would God put this in? By the way, Hosea never mentioned again, except his name is mentioned when Paul quotes from the end of this book in Romans chapter 9. Other than that, Hosea's story is not mentioned in the books of the kings, Samuel's nothing. Why would we have so little information? 
consider this. Who's the story about? Is it really about Hosea and Gomer? Is the story really about God and Israel? Because that's the deal. Ladies and gentlemen, over and over and over and over in these stories through the Old Testament, we hear little pieces, and sometimes we read them as if, boy, God didn't give us very much on that, or it's kind of harsh, or whatever. The truth is, the story is not about the people as much as it is about the interaction between God and the people. And these writers knew that. And they kept it focused. This is about, this metaphor is about God and Israel. Second thing to consider. Hosea and Gomer, as the metaphor, how far does that go? Are we supposed to read all these stories and go, well, I guess if my wife's unfaithful to me, the Bible tells me I should go marry her again. I guess I have to go, even if I have to go buy her back, do whatever I have to. Is that the point of these stories? I hope not. I hope not. This is an illustration that is designed to say, hey, here's what the interaction is about. Now, let me ask you this really tough question. This one's tough. Would you be willing to allow God to make you ridiculously uncomfortable, do something unthinkable, take back the multiplied unfaithful wife? Would you be willing to do that to illustrate what God wants to say? That one's tough. In America, for some reason, we've come to the place where we believe Christianity is like a, a highway to heaven, like that is a wonderful, and it's all going to go better, and God's going to fix everything. We even say all of our prayers like, well, let's ask God to fix everything. Have you considered over and over and over, starting back with Adam, going all the way through these Old Testament stories, finally culminating in his own son dying a horrific death on the cross for you. Have you realized God uses people to tell his stories on his terms, not on making art? Are you willing to sign up? Because that's the faith and the courage that these people had. Can you imagine the courage and the faith it took for Hosea to say, I will go back and pay money for this unfaithful woman who has treated me terribly. What would cause a man to do that? Faith and trust in God. The next thing to consider. God redeems here in spite of the fact that there has been misplaced trust. There's no evidence at all that Gomer has the wake-up call. And she goes, oh, Man, did I mess that up. I'm an idiot. I need to go back. In fact, the way it's stated is she's still in the middle of an adulterous affair with whoever this other man is. We don't even know. Gomer doesn't have a lights-on moment, and then God says, now go redeem her and bring her back in. In fact, while she's right still in the middle of her sin, she's redeemed. Does that sound familiar? While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. If you believe for a minute, you're going to get yourself into a position that's good enough for God to move toward you. <laughs> it is not going to happen. And yet God continues to offer the opportunity to come back. I've paid the price. It's already done for you. Come back. Come back. 
And the fourth thing is this, and it's tied right to that. The gospel is in here. If you're looking, go back to chapter 13. This is an unbelievable story of the gospel as he tells the story and, and reads what his plans are. God says, verse 4 of chapter 13, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, and you shall acknowledge no other God but me. And here's an interesting little add-on phrase. You will have no other Savior except me. Huh. Now, the first part sounds very familiar if you know, know the story of the Jews coming out in the Exodus. The second part says, God, I, I am God offering to save you. I brought you out of Egypt. I cared for you in the desert in the land of burning heat. I fed you, and you were satisfied. And then look what happens. When you became satisfied, you became proud. And when you became proud, you forgot me. It's exactly how it sounds. I took care of you. I brought you out. I, I cared for you. I offered you life and hope and love and peace and grace and plenty. And when you got to the place of plenty, you got full of pride and you forgot me. Does that sound familiar to anybody? As American people in the 21st century, we literally believe God somehow, we, ask, we keep asking him for more. We haven't even had enough. We're not even close to enough. In fact, we believe we're not even, we're not even prosperous or something. I don't even know what happened. We're somewhere in this cycle of God says, I've given you, I've taken care of you, I've given you more than enough, I care for you. And it says, but as soon as you got satisfied, you're like, I really don't, I don't know, I don't, I forget God. So they became proud, they forgot me. So I'll come upon them like a lion, like a leopard, like a bear. I'll attack them. Why? To destroy them just for the sake of destruction or because I'm... I'm like vindictive as God. No way is it that. Why, I'll take away your king. I gave you a king in my anger, and then in my wrath, I take the king away, verse 11 says. But verse 14 says this, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. This might sound familiar. Where, O oh, death, is your plagues? Where, O oh, grave, is your destruction? Paul went back and grabbed a hold of this and said, this is the hope of the gospel. God promised this to us 750 years before Jesus showed up on the scene. He promised this to us. He's been promising us this all along. The price has been paid. It's already out there. Our challenge today is to say, God, I hear this story. This story reminds me. I can feel the pain of this man who goes back after his adulterous woman. I can sense that. I can feel it in my bones. But I say, please, you've extended mercy. I want that mercy. I will not forget you. Ushers, if you would come right now. We uh, worship in a way of response here at the end in every one of our services at Dillon Community Church. One way to respond is if you would like to give financially. This is not for uh, some kind of show. It's nothing to do with that. This is an opportunity. We promise you we will use it 
Maybe that looks a little silly. <laughs> but we will use it for things that matter for the kingdom. You heard Annika. 50% of the children coming this week are from families who say, we do not have a connection to God right now, at least not in a church context. This is a response because we remember. And then in a few minutes, we're going to have communion together, and that's another mechanism designed to help us to remember. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these stories. There, we could have cracked, cracked open so many more. We could have done this for a year to look through these beautiful stories, some of them just full of intrigue, full of astounding things, full of the unbelievable that you ask people to do. Thank you, Lord, that story after story after story illustrates for us how faith in you and courage is truly worth it. We ask for grace and strength from the Holy Spirit to have more faith and more courage as we trust you. Help us to turn our face towards you and to no one else right now. We offer these offerings as a gift back, as a thank you, as a remembrance. And we do all of that in Jesus' name. observe communion every week here at Dillon Community Church. As part of that process, we uh, have a couple people on either side that would be willing to take some time to pray. If you'd like to pray through uh, something, an event, a circumstance, maybe an awareness, something the Spirit has brought to your heart and mind, there are people available for that. We also extend the cup and the bread. This is, by the way, gluten-free. If that's important to you, you can come and take. Um, we'll hold out the bread. We'll say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. We'll hold out the cup and say, this is the, his blood shed for you. And we do it to remember. That's exactly what Jesus started this because he knew all those stories of the Old Testament, how easy it is to forget. So I encourage you to come today. We invite anyone. We do not have to be a member of this church. Anyone who is on a journey with Jesus Christ who would like to express that remembrance today, come. So right now, come, we invite you.
shining as the sun with no less days to sing God's praise and when we first begun let's stand together and sing this the Lord has promised good to me his word my hope secure he will my shield and portion be as long as life Thank you for calling Gomer back to Hosea. 
Thank you for calling Israel back, for bringing them back from captivity eventually. Thank you for bringing Christ to us and calling us home as well. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now you remember, you got to carry a chair. Carry a chair. Here's what you can do. Carry a chair. You can take some across the hallway over there into this right room, and you can just put it down in there. Don't worry about where to stack it. Some can go back in the library. We can also use about 20 or 30 of them that could go up to the youth room upstairs if you know where that is. Very good. Be blessed and have a dismissing wonderful time. All right. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. All right. Was blind, if you can carry two, you get extra credit. You get extra credit points if you can carry two. Taught my heart to fear and grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace.